So I'm sure we've all had one of those moments. All of you have had one of those moments where nothing else matters. Like something happens in your life that just wipes away the past, wipes away the future. It doesn't matter what's going on anymore because nothing else matters. Maybe, um, Maybe it's some event that you just get so pumped up about and everything goes according to plan. And afterwards you're like, oh, it doesn't matter what's going on at home, what's coming up next week. Like, I'm living in the moment. It's so great. Everything is awesome. It might be that you had this dream sports, uh, uh, this dream game where you scored all the goals or you, or you scored your, your career high in points or, or whatever. You scored a couple touchdowns and like everything <clears throat> went perfectly, went according to plan. And nothing else matters. You're just living in the moment. And the moment is all that matters. Maybe you've been asking somebody out for, for, I don't know, for years. And you've liked them forever. And they keep saying no. And then finally they say yes. Or um, you keep uh, getting turned down by people. And you like someone um, all of a sudden that likes you back. And you start dating and all that. And then nothing else matters. It doesn't matter that you got rejected by so-and-so. Or that you like so-and-so in eighth grade. It doesn't matter that um, who you're going to get married to later. Like in the moment, this is all that matters. Your grades don't matter. Uh, What's going on at home doesn't matter. Uh, What trips are coming up don't matter. All that matters is that that person likes you, that you're in a relationship with the person that you want to be with. And nothing else matters because everything has gone right. I had one of these moments, um, not me particularly, but I saw one of these moments a couple weeks ago. I was at home uh, on the weekend and I was just sitting out on my porch, uh, reading a book, sitting at kind of a high top table. So I'm looking out. Um, and, uh, and I know some of you think that, like, it's great to have a, uh, a view of the beach or a view of the mountains, a view of, like, uh, a forest or woods or something like that. But um, in my neighborhood, in my apartment, we have a second-story balcony, real high up, second story, that looks over such a beautiful view of our parking lot beautiful view of our parking lot, and and this parking lot full of cars, you see nice cars coming in and out, you know, like a Honda Civic or uh, a Ford Explorer, awesome stuff, and you see these garages, you see kids riding their bikes around, Um, you see see people walking their dogs, an amazing view, and then even behind that, we have the added bonus of a beautiful view of San Pablo, and then behind that, a brand new neighborhood Walmart. Awesome view. So I'm sitting out there enjoying the view that God has given me. And, and what happens is I see this little girl riding on a scooter. And I'm not talking about like a Razor scooter or like a, like a little moped or something. She's got like a little dirt bike thing. And it's like a foot tall and she's like five years old. And, uh, and it's pink with white polka dots. And just imagine like a non-gas, like battery-powered little motorcycle. So she's riding on it, probably goes 10 miles an hour. She's got her helmet on, she's got her outfit on, and uh, her dad's watching her, making sure traffic is clear, no one's around. And uh, she would, she would kind of get permission to go, and she'd go on this big loop around the parking lot, behind a couple of garage buildings, around cars, and then right back to see him. And then she'd stop, and she'd talk to him, and it was so cute, she's uh, she was like a little Hispanic girl, and so she was bilingual, and she's speaking just going from Spanish to English, English to Spanish. And like I've said, it makes me feel terrible and so inferior because I took four years of, uh, of, of Spanish. I even took uh, three semesters of Spanish in, in college, 
I did well in the classes, and I'm grown up, and I still can't speak two languages. And here's this little five-year-old who's fluent in two languages. Um, and so she's speaking, and it's so cute. She's going back and forth with her dad, and uh, she'll get permission, and she'll go. And every time she would take off, she'd stick, once she started going, she'd stick one hand up in the air, and she'd go, Woo! This loud exclamation, and then she'd go, This is awesome! And then she'd put her hand back on the, on the, on the wheel, because, uh, or on the bars, because she'd have to make a turn. And then when she got back on another straightaway, you'd hear her again, Woo! And then she'd get back to her dad. And this happened, I don't know, 10 times. She would just take off, and I'm just like mesmerized watching it. It's so, it's, it's so funny. And then her mom or her aunt or somebody comes out, and she sees her, and like she saved like her best trick for last. And so she sees uh, the woman come out, and she, uh, she kind of looks back at her with a look, and then she's like, watch this. And then she, uh, she, she brooms up her little battery-powered motorcycle and takes off. And as soon as she takes off, she kisses her fingers, and raises them to the air in a peace sign, and is like, "Woo!" And then she gives like a wave to her mom and her dad as she rides off into the distance. And it was, it was just hilarious to watch her do this. But I noticed that in this moment, nothing else mattered for her. I don't know what's going on in her life, what goes on in her family, whether her parents are together. I don't know what her future holds. I don't know what the day-to-day life is like for her. But in this moment, Nothing else mattered. And that's a moment we get here today as we look at Joseph's story. And we pick up in uh, chapter 41, verse 33. We see this moment where nothing else matters. And uh, just so that we're all caught up, in the last uh, part of the scripture that we read, Joseph has been brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's had these dreams and he needs them interpreted. And Joseph gets in front of him and has the audacity to say, I can't do anything for you, Pharaoh, but God can. Gives all the glory to God, uses his gift from God to serve others. And, and, and as he does this, he tells Pharaoh what his dreams mean. And they mean this. Um, he has two dreams and they mean the same thing. That Egypt will have seven years of abundance. The economy will be good. The crops will grow. Everything's going great. But then there's going to be seven years of famine. And the famine's going to be so severe that it wipes out the seven years of abundance. No one will even be able to remember it. There will be no food left. And so he's given them this dream interpretation. And that's where we pick up in verse 33. As he starts telling Pharaoh kind of how this thing's going to break down. How to be successful through the 14 years. Seven of abundance and seven of famine. So he says this in verse 33. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land, governors over the land, to take a fifth of the harvest, that's 20% of the harvest of Egypt, during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Notice the first thing that, that, that Joseph does in this situation. He approaches it not with a me first, Joseph first mentality, but with humility. He doesn't get up there and say, okay, I'm in control. I have all the power. I, 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 got, the, I got the good hand here. I can kind of control this situation. I'm going to get power in this situation. He doesn't say, hey, Joseph, uh, hey uh, Pharaoh, I've got the plan, but you can only have it if you hire me and put me in control. No, 
he just gives him the plan, no strings attached. Hey, Pharaoh, you're probably going to want to find someone wise and discerning. Whoever you want. And this is what this guy needs to do. He doesn't try to get the power for himself. Another sign of his character and integrity. And so, verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, which is amazing in and of itself. That means his whole government agreed upon this random guy's plan. And we see in our country, it's very hard for people to agree on things. So the plan seems good to Pharaoh and all his officials. That's pretty much a miracle in and of itself. Verse 38, so Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Pharaoh recognizes God in Joseph. The reason why this is such a big deal is that Pharaoh and Egypt had their own set of gods. Pharaoh was considered a god or a descendant of the gods. And so for him to say, I recognize God in this foreign man, this unclean man, this prisoner, this slave, was amazing. And it goes to show us that when we live our lives according to God, when we obey God, when we live following the Holy Spirit, it is noticeable. People notice and they're changed by it. They pay attention. They don't have to believe what you believe. They don't have to buy into anything the Bible says, but they'll buy in to the way you live your life. It's important. Then he goes on in verse 39, and this is where it gets really good. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, again, recognizing God, since God made this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. He has all these other officials, and no, no, no. You're, Joseph, you are the discerning and wise one. So verse 40, you shall be in charge of my palace. Pharaoh says, my palace is yours. You're in charge of it. And all of my people, my people, Pharaoh's people, the Egyptians, are to submit to your orders. Submit to your orders can be uh, translated in a different way, which is pretty interesting. It can be translated into a phrase that says, all of my people are to kiss your hands and your feet. To kiss your hands and your feet. My people are going to bow down and kiss you and do whatever you say. Pharaoh's handing over his authority and his power. And he says, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Only with respect to the throne, Joseph. Basically, only a technicality is going to make me greater than you. At this point, Joseph is 30 years old. If we remember, he came into slavery at the age of 17. So he has spent 13 years in slavery, 13 years away from his home and his family, 13 years feeling the betrayal of his brothers, not knowing if his dad knew if he was alive or dead, 13 years of being betrayed when he does the right thing, being betrayed by Potiphar's wife, 13 years of going to prison, 13 years of being forgotten about and rotting away in an ancient jail cell. 13 years. But in this moment, it's all been made worth it. So that's the first thing in your notes. God's dream for your life is worth the wait. God's dream in your life 
is worth the wait. God's dream for your life is worth the wait. In this moment, just like the little girl riding around in the scooter in the neighborhood, nothing else matters. The past doesn't matter. The family doesn't matter. Nothing else matters because he has achieved the dream that God had for him. He has been given so much more than he ever could have imagined, and it all happened just like that because that's how God works. Just like that, his life is changed. He's put in charge of the palace. And sometimes I think we wonder, like, why do I have the ups and downs? Why do I have the pits of life? Like, why do I have to go through that? Sometimes we get like this hope, uh, like, oh, God's about to work. And then he doesn't. And we think, oh my gosh, God forgot about me. Why did, why did he even do that? I wish he just hadn't gotten my hopes up. I wish I had just kind of stayed level instead of going up and then going all the way back down. Because now I just, now I just feel completely abandoned. But the truth is, God's dream for us is worth the wait. When I first got out of college, I wanted to, to work in sports, and I took all these internships. Um, and, and I was like, always like, I'm going to be a, like in front of my like classmates. Like, I'm going to be higher up on the ladder. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my internships done early. I'm going to have a high GPA. I'm going to graduate with honors. And I looked around at my, at my friends and my major, and I was like, man, I've got it. Like, I, I'm gonna, this is going to work out. And then I graduated, and I wasn't sure what to do anymore, and I didn't really get the opportunities I wanted to. So I take this job that I hated with everything in me. I hated I hated going to it. I hated what I had to wear. I hated, um, I hated like, that it, wasn't really, it didn't even require a college education. I was like, what was the point of college? And I'm just like, why am I in this position? Why, why is this going on? And then I'd, I'd kind of think, like, maybe I'll do this. And I'd, I'd apply for a job, and I'd make it to the final two, and I'd go apply for it, and I wouldn't get it. I'd be like, well... I wish I had just not even gotten the, the, the interview. Why did that even happen? And then, you know, I'd try for another job, and then the same thing would happen. Why did that even happen? Why are, why are you giving me these, uh, these pits or the, these heights and then sending me right back down into the pit, God? And then I, I got another job, and I actually kind of liked the job, and, and then I had a chance to go on full-time, but there was a change in management. And then I got offered another job at the same time. So I have these two jobs that are both pretty good. They're both working with students in some form or fashion. And I'm like, okay, this is going to work out. And then in one day, both jobs, separate from each other, one a private school, one a public school, called me and just said, the job's off the table. They had, they had given me the job, and then all of a sudden called me back, and they said, never mind, we're not, we can't give you the job. And, and both were for different reasons. They, neither of them had to do with me. And I sat down on my couch. I went up to my room, and I sat down on my couch, and I just cried. And I was like, what? Why does this have to happen like this? Why did I have to, like, why, was, why didn't God just leave me in the other job that I hated? Because at least I wouldn't have, wouldn't have gotten my hopes up and gotten my dreams up and then just crashed right back down to the ground. But what I realized now, as I've, as I've gotten into a place where I feel God has called me as a student pastor, is that the pits and the ups and downs made the dream and the goal and the prize worth it. God's dream for our life is worth the wait. <clears throat> God's dream for our life is worth the wait. Those, those problems make it all worth it. And the truth is, I didn't intend to be a pastor. People ask me as I grow up, hey, you're going to be a pastor? You're going to follow in your dad's footsteps? Like, they have nothing to say to me, so they just come up and ask me that, like, small talk. And I'm like, uh, no, I mean, I don't think so. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm eight years old. Why are you asking me this? And then, and then um, and I never would have intended to do that. I didn't graduate college and think, I'm going to go work at church. I'm going to work at beach. I'm going I'm to do all that. I never thought about that. And it took God sending me through some peaks and valleys. It took God sending me through the path he had for me, for me to see this portion of his dream for my life. Let's move on. Verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger. This is a ring that signified his power as Pharaoh. 
and he puts it on Joseph's finger. He takes his power, puts it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. He gave him like the best gear in Egypt. He puts a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in a chariot as the second in command. So he's got him like in the best clothes. He's got him iced out. He's got all the jewelry. He gets him in like the Mercedes Benz of chariots. It's gold. It's beautiful. He's got the perfect white horses on the front of it. And he puts him in front of all of Egypt. And he rides through town. And this is what the people say. The people shouted before him, make way. Everybody say, make way. Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 44. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, Joseph, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. It reminds us of what happened at Potiphar's house and in the, and in the, uh, the prison. The same thing happened. They said, you take care of everything, Joseph. You're wise, you're smart, you have integrity, you have God with you. Take, take care of everything. I don't need to worry about anything. You're in charge. So that same thing happens here. It says, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name, this is a tough one, Zaphnath Paneah, and gave him uh, Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. So he gives him the gear, he gives him the ride, he gives him a royal wife, a, a, a daughter of one of the priests, and then he gives him a royal name, an Egyptian name. So he gives him all these things, and this is the crazy thing about this. If you've, if you've ever looked up any kind of ancient culture, kings were psychopaths. Kings were so power-hungry that they would do anything to keep the power to themselves. In fact, um, in, in, in uh, Egyptian culture, they would, uh, a pharaoh would take power and many times marry every single royal princess in the entire kingdom. Why? Because he didn't want anyone to marry them, have royal kids who could possibly take away his power, take away his throne. There's a, there's a writing, a letter from a father uh, uh, pharaoh to a son pharaoh. And what it says, basically, here's the advice that he gives them when it's translated. Trust nobody. Have no friends. Watch out for everybody because people are coming for you and they're going to take your power. This was the culture that pharaohs lived in. This is the culture that the ancient rulers lived in. So when he does all this stuff, when he gives away his ring and his power and his authority, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. This was never done in this time. And so this leads us to the second thing. God has more for you than you can imagine. God has more for you than you can imagine can imagine. In Ephesians 3.20, you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 3.20, it talks about how God has gonna, is going to give us more than we could even hope for or imagine, more than we could ever dream of. You think of your wildest dreams of the things that you could ever want in this life or in eternity, and God's going to give us more than we could ever imagine. God has more for you in this dream that he has for your life than you can imagine, and we can live with excitement we can live with anticipation because we never know what the next step is, what the next thing that God's going to do is, what the next answered prayer is going to be, what the next new relationship or, or healing is going to be, what the next um, time that God is going to come through is going to be. We never know, and we can live in anticipation and excitement, knowing that he can change everything just like that. Joseph went to prisoner to king in a day. So God has more for you than you can imagine. Now, I want to I, I give you a clarification on this. This does not mean you get whatever you want. This does not mean you're going to get power 
and success and fame. We, we know that not everybody in the world has power and success and fame. Not everybody in the world has everything they want. That's just the way the world is. So what I'm not saying is some kind of prosperity thing where it's like, you love God, he's going to give you a dream, and he's going to do whatever you want him to do, and he's going to be your, your personal genie. That's not, that's not how it works. But the, the, the interesting thing is that God will give us what we need. And many times what we need is more than we could ever imagine. And many times he'll also give us the desires of our heart, things that we wouldn't even, even have known to ask for. He'll give us more than we can ever imagine. Because the truth is, you can look back uh, 10 years on your prayer request and you were 8 years old, or, or when you were 3 or 4 years old, and be like, man, I'm glad God didn't give me that. Because that was a ridiculous want of my heart. And if God gave you everything you want, if your parents gave you everything you want, your life wouldn't necessarily be where you want it to be. So God has more for you than you can imagine, but it's not always just the power, the money, and the success. It's giving us what we need. And trust me, the pits are worth it. The valleys are worth it. Because God's plan is better than we could ever imagine. Let's keep going on. Verse 46. So Joseph was 36 years old, or I'm sorry, 30 years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. As he said, Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain. Like the sand of the sea, it was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Listen to this next part. Please lean into this because this is very important. Before the years of famine came... Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Two sons were born. Joseph named his firstborn, and, and keep in mind, names are very important in the Bible, especially names of the firstborn sons. They always mean something, and they mean something in this situation. This is going to tell us our, uh, our, our final part, <clears throat> our final note in the notes. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. Everybody say Manasseh. And said, it is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. What he's saying here is, God has given me something so great. His dream was so great for my life that nothing else matters anymore. My, my family doesn't really matter. What, how they hurt me doesn't really matter. He's made me forget it. He's made me forget my trouble. And then his second son, he named Ephraim. Everybody say Ephraim. And he said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Manasseh literally means to forget. Fruit, uh, Ephraim literally means fruitful. So with his two children that he has named, he shows all of Egypt who would have heard the names of his children that God has come through and made me forget my troubles, made me forget the pits, made me forget the times I got thrown into prison and forgotten about, and he has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Leads us to the third thing. Don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget what God has done for you. In James 1, James writes about how every good and perfect gift comes from the Father on high who loves us. Every good and perfect gift. And a lot of times we think, you know, God gives me some things, but he doesn't give me everything. No, everything you have is thanksgiving to God. The fact you live in America, thanks be to God, that's a gift from God. The fact that you have a family of some sort, the fact that you get to go to school where other people in the world don't even get to go to school, the fact that you get to um, 
have, have, have food, the fact that you're, some of your favorite restaurants even exist, barbecue and Chick-fil-A, I'm thankful. That's a thankful gift. That's a gift I'm pr- so excited that God gave me. And many times we just say, oh, well, God just has to do with spiritual things. No, every good and perfect thing in your life comes from God. We've talked about this before. If you ever want to get yourself out of the pit, just write down all the things God's done for you, all the positions he's put you in, all the people he's put in your life, the, the friends that he's put in your life, the successes, maybe even the failures because they got you to where you are. Every good and perfect thing comes from a father above who loves us. So don't forget what God has done for you. In this moment, Joseph Joseph remembered what God had done for him. And that was that God fulfilled a dream for his life, that God never forgot about him, never gave up on him, and always had a plan and a dream for him. And so we continue on in in, in verse 53, and we'll finish out the passage here of this chapter. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt... There was food. When all of Egypt began to feel the the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And look at what Pharaoh tells the Egyptians. Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. And all of the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. So God, through one man, saves the entire world. A lot of people will say, give God a bad rap. They're like, well, Noah, he, you know, he killed the world and he destroyed the world. And how would the loving God do that and all that stuff? But then they forget about the times where God came through to save an entire generation. And how did he do it? He did it through one of us. He didn't do it through some massive miracle. He did it through giving wisdom and, and, and the spirit of discernment to Joseph. And Joseph comes through and is able to save the world. Save the world. Save people that didn't know God, didn't believe in God, weren't a people set apart for God. And here's a question. What if Joseph gave up? What if Joseph just quit? He said, you know what? I keep trying to follow God, and you know what? He just doesn't come through, so I'm done. I'm just going to get mine. I'm going to try to escape from prison. I'm going to do the wrong thing. When Potiphar's wife comes over to me, I'm just going to take what's mine. I'm going to get everything I can because God's let me down. I'm not going to live for him anymore. I'm not going to trust in him anymore. Maybe he even says, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm just going, I'm just going to end my life because I, I really don't need what God has given me. What happens if Joseph gives up? What if he quits? And, and I think an important thing for us to remember is who is on the other side of our obedience? Who's on the other side of us answering God's call, of us continuing, of us keeping the faith and keeping the trust for God? Because if you give up, someone else is going to get hurt by it. I can promise you. If you give up, someone else doesn't come to know Jesus. If you give up, someone else doesn't have a relationship they need. If you give up, someone else doesn't hear the encouragement and the love of Christ. Jesus, God, wants to use us. And the band can go ahead and come back up. This is how... Uh, we're going to close. I want to I refer back to verse 43. Notice what it says. It says, He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way. Make way. Pretty interesting thing, because the translation of this can literally come out to bow down. 
So as he rides this chariot through town, everyone is saying, bow down to Joseph. And then as we read it, I'm sure as as Joseph was riding through, he kind of had a thought. Remember 15 years ago, 13, 14, 15 years ago, that dream I had where God gave me a vision of my future, where people would bow down. And yes, they were talking about the stars and, and the moon bowing down to him. That was, that was referring to his family. But it was also referring to an overall dream for his life, that he would be in power, that people would bow down to him through the power of God. So just like the dream he had, God came through. And in a moment, nothing else mattered. The past didn't matter. The future didn't matter. His family didn't matter. He had made it. And this is, how, um, this is how we'll respond. I, I just want to make sure you guys know, because as we talk about the Old Testament and we get into the story, it's great. There's so much to learn from it. But you might say, well, what do I do with this? Like, what is, uh, what's the application? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be wor- I'll worth, it'll be worth the wait. I'll trust God. He has more for me than I can imagine. That's great. That's encouraging. I'm not going to forget what he's done for me. But the important thing to think about and remember is that God's greatest gift for us, his greatest dream for us, is eternity. It's eternity. And who does it happen through? It happens through Jesus Christ. In 1 John, it's the last verse I got for you. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, it says this. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. We cannot experience God's dream for our lives. We cannot experience the joy that he has for us. We cannot experience the peace and the love and the fruitfulness and forgetting about the trouble and forgetting about the past and not worrying about the future. We can't do any of that apart from Jesus. Listen to me. We can't do it apart from Jesus. It does not happen. You live a better life. That's, that's not what brings that eternal fulfillment. Jesus is the only one who can do that. We cannot experience all God has for us if we're not in a relationship with him. Now, there's two groups of people in this room. There's people that know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and there's people who don't. The only difference is not that one's better than the other. One's forgiven. One's one's asked for forgiveness, and one doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what I want to ask you to do is during these first few songs, even in the next few minutes, I want you to start writing down good and perfect gifts God's given you. And just start a list. I bet you if you start getting creative and you start thinking about all the things he's done for you, you're going to fill up your entire page and, and, and have to start writing on another piece of paper. Write down the things God's done for you. Because when you do that, you learn that trusting him is worth it. That he's come through over and over again. He loves you. He's for you. He wants the best for you. So trust him and embrace the hope that comes in Jesus. Many times we're Christians and we don't live with any hope. We live defeated, sad, boring lives because we just forget that God loves us and has everything for us. But God is for us and not against us. So trust him. And then for the people that don't know Jesus, that you've never given your life to Christ, maybe you've been coming to church for years, maybe your parents are Christians, maybe it's your first time tonight. Listen up, listen up. Don't don't miss this. If you don't know Jesus, he wants you to be in a relationship with him. So bow your heads close your eyes, and this is what we're going to do. We're just going to have a time where you can pray, and the prayer that I say is not magical, but the book of Romans says you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. You confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, just like that. In the name of Jesus, you will be saved, and it's called salvation and forgiveness. 
And all you must do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. So I'm going to pray a prayer and you can repeat after me. And if you want to make this, this, this prayer for the first time, if you want to take this prayer in for yourself, I'm just going to ask you on the count of three to raise your hand. And, uh, and the reason we do that is because I want you to remember the time where you raised your hand for sure and you remembered that you gave your life over to Jesus. And I also want to just have a chance to talk to you, so I just want to be very transparent and clear. Someone's just going to grab you after the prayer time, and just I'm going to meet you in the back, just me and you, or, or me and a couple of people. And I just want to talk to you, congratulate you, tell you how excited I am for you. Nothing freaky, nothing crazy. We're not going to do some kind of crazy chant or anything like that. It's, it's all cool. But I just want you to pray with me if you want to give your life to Christ for the first time, don't worry about who's around you. Don't worry about what your parents believe or your friends believe. You have to make the decision for yourself. So bow your heads and close your eyes. And on the count of three, if you want to make this decision for the first time, I want you to raise your hand. One, God has a dream for you. Two, it can only come through Jesus. Three, raise your hand. Shoot up your hand. If that's you, shoot up your hand. Shoot up your hand and keep it up. Don't worry about what's going on around you. Make sure you keep it up so we can follow up with you. And pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm yours. I know I need a savior. I know that I cannot live a fruitful and abundant life apart from you. Lord, forgive me for the things I've done and be the savior of my life. Change my life and change my eternity. I want what you have to offer and not what the world has to offer. In your holy, holy name, I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that you are changed for eternity. And so what I want you to do is meet me in the back room. Everybody else, stand up. If you're writing that list, I want you to keep writing. So if you're writing that list, just stay seated and keep writing. But otherwise, stand up and let's worship the God who loves us together, the God who has a dream for our lives, the God who loves us more than anything else in the world because we are his children. Let's worship and pray together. Life group leaders are up here to pray with you. The altars are open. Prayer cards if you want to put them in here. We love you. Jesus loves you. Let's worship.